Last week we saw only God can save the wicked, so turn to him. And today we return to some of the themes of restoration from two weeks ago that we saw in Isaiah 54 through 56, where we see uh, the rejected barren woman in chapter 54, and then the man who has no children in chapter 56 can come before God uh, with uh, restoration and hope. And as we return to those themes, what hope would God offer for people who are in the hopeless state of captivity? He would bring joy and glory back to Jerusalem as he restores Israel's prominence among the nations. We see this in chapter 60. He would use his servant to bring good news of comfort to the afflicted of his people. We see that in chapter 61. And he would reunite himself with his wandering people like a groom renewing his vows of marriage in chapter 62. And all of these truths, I think, encourage us to rejoice with God as he remarries his wayward bride. Rejoice with God as he remarries his wayward bride. Chapter 60, we see, first of all, that God will glorify himself as he restores Jerusalem to a place of glory. In verses 1 through 3, we see that God gives light and makes Zion, the city of Jerusalem, also a light. God's glory will bring light to his city in verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Darkness will cover the earth, but not God's city, which draws other nations by her light. We see here an echo of certain themes from creation in which God speaks light out of darkness. We see Paul alluding to this idea in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where he uh, talks about God who has shined in our hearts to bring us out of darkness. <clears throat> we saw it in Isaiah 49, verse 6, where it says, It is too small a thing to be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, so my salvation may reach the end of the earth. We saw it in Isaiah 52, verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. We see it also in Acts 13 and Acts 26, in which God raises people up to bring his light to all peoples. So God gives light and makes Zion a light. And then secondly, God gathers peoples to Zion. We see this in chapter 60, verses 4 through 9. Her own people will gather in verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, wealth will be brought in verses 5 through 7, as God is praised, verse 6. People and spoils will be summoned, as all see God as the one who does it. Verse 9, the Holy One of Israel has glorified you. And then God also restores Zion's walls and her security. He does this in verses 10 through 14 by the work of foreigners. Verse 10, no enemy will threaten and the gates will be open. Verse 11, because enemies will perish, verse 12, anyone who opposes her. Trees in their glory and majesty will decorate God's sanctuary, verse 13, <coughs> and nations will bow down. And then verse 15 through 22, we see that God restores the position of Israel before the nations. They go from being forsaken and hated to being a pride and joy. In verse 15, they receive provision from pagans in verse 16, and they will have treasures that abound in verse 17. 
not bronze but gold, not iron but silver, and so on. War will cease, verse 18, and again, God will be their light, which anticipates what we see in Revelation 20 through 21. And I want to highlight for you that this is a physical, earthly reality with spiritual significance. Sometimes we think that heaven is just up there, immaterial, out there somewhere. But the reality is the eternal state will be on a recreated earth in which God dwells with his people. It will be a very physical reality, but also a spiritual one. And then we see lastly in verses 15 through 22 that people will be righteous and will be multiplied in verses 21 through 22. And so God is going to glorify himself as he restores Jerusalem to a place of glory, giving light, making Zion a light, gathering peoples to Zion, restoring Zion's walls and security, and restoring Zion's position before the nations. <clears throat> God will bring glory to himself as he glorifies Jerusalem as the symbol of his people Israel. And yet, in exalting their city, he doesn't forget to encourage the people themselves who are afflicted and worn down. So the second big point from chapter 61, God will use his servant to comfort his afflicted people. First, God's servant will proclaim hope and comfort, verses 1 through 3. He anoints his servant to bring good news. We see this in Luke 2, 10 through 11, in the person of Jesus. In this good news, the broken will be healed, the captives freed, and there will be comfort for the mourners as God brings vengeance on his enemies. This has, for me, echoes of 2 Thessalonians 1 where it talks about those who are troubled finding rest as God comes to carry out his vengeance on the earth, which both delivers the people and accomplishes his justice on the world. Verse 3 of Isaiah 61 says God will restore his mourning people in righteousness to bring himself glory. Probably a familiar verse. A garland instead of ashes, gladness for instead of mourning, praise instead of a spirit of fainting. Not only will God's servant proclaim hope and comfort, but God will use the nations to restore what had been taken from his people, verses 4 through 11. The nations will rebuild the cities and keep flocks for God's people, verses 4 and 5. God's people themselves will serve as priests, provided for by the nations instead of by their own people, and exalted in joy, verse 7. We saw this also in verses 5 and 15 of chapter 60. We see that God's character demands obedience to his declared sacrifice and that he will be faithful to his covenant. And this goes back to the end of chapter 59. This is my covenant with them. My words will not depart from your mouth or from the mouth of your offspring. It also goes to verse 7 of chapter 61 and uh, chapter 60, verses 20 through 22. And God's work will bring joy and gladness like that of a wedding. Verses 10 through 11, uh, we see this idea, garments of salvation, a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. God, verse 11, will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. We see this again in Revelation 19, verses 7 through 10. He says, right, blessed are those who, uh, or verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. 
It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he says, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Scholars argue about whether the marriage supper of the Lamb is exclusively for the church, but for all of God's people. But we see it in anticipation of the restoration of Israel that picks up these themes of marriage and of joy and of uh, celebration. And then the main point, I think, comes in chapter 62. God would restore the fortunes of Jerusalem and comfort his afflicted people. But both of these pictures are united in the vision of God renewing his marriage with his bride. And so we could say it this way, the third main point. God remarries his chosen people to dwell in their land with them. First of all, God will glorify her. Chapter 62, verses 1 through 9. Her righteousness, salvation, and name will be glorious by God's power like a crown filled with jewels. Verses 1 through 3. The nations will see it. She will be called by a new name. And those names are described in verses 4 through 9. Verses 4 through 9, I think, are really important. We see this picture of her moving from being forsaken and desolate to being delightful and married. Verse 4. Verses 4 through 9 is the idea of God marrying Israel again despite her former sin. From forsaken and desolate, verse 4, delight and married. And think about what this would have been from the perspective of the people of Israel. It felt as though God had rejected them. It felt as though they had been divorced or widowed or cast aside or forgotten. And yet God was going to restore them, bring them back to the land and say, you are my people. And not just I begrudgingly brought you back here, but that I take delight in you and I renew my relationship with you. The people will be united as God unites himself with her. And I think that's the picture that we see in verse 5. So your sons will marry you. That's kind of a strange image, but at the same time, I think it's a description of the uniting of the people as God unites himself with the people. I think we see uh, anticipation, not really anticipation, Looking back on this in First Peter, where it says um, in First Peter two verses nine through ten. Let me read that for us here, just a moment. He says, "You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light." For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There was a time in which God set aside the people of Israel, seemingly rejected them, seemingly cast them off forever. And yet, that was never his intent for them to always be apart, always be separated, but rather that he would rejoice in them, give them a new name, restore this relationship. Instead of worthless leaders that we saw last week, she will have faithful watchmen, verses 6 and 7, to make Jerusalem a praise in the earth, as verse 7 says. And it's interesting that these watchmen will never be silent, but it seems like instead of them warning the people of coming danger, they are declaring God's praise, which is not the typical function of watchmen. But 
It's just interesting how it goes from here's people who are not doing the job they were supposed to do, so God reproves them for being wicked leaders, to now here are people who are doing a job you wouldn't expect them to do, but it brings praise to God. And because these gates are open and God gives security, there's no need for them to do the job of guards. So they have the job to be in the city declaring God's praise. And then verse uh, 8 and 9. God promises never again to give her over to enemies. But instead, there will be rejoicing in the harvest. Think about the transition from an opportunity, not an opportunity, a situation in which like Gideon, you're hiding out over here, you're worried that the Midianites are going to come steal your grain, so you're threshing the grain in the wine press where nobody hopefully will see you. To go from that situation to say, I can gather freely and I can enjoy the fruit of the harvest and all those sorts of things because God has given security and God has promised never to let me be plundered again by my enemies. And so God remarries his chosen people to dwell in their land in that he will glorify her. Righteousness, salvation, and a new name, renewing the relationship of marriage despite former sin. But God will also proclaim her salvation and her status before the peoples. There is this declaration of preparing a way for the people to gather. Verse 10, which goes all the way back to earlier in Isaiah, I think it's chapter 11. God's righteous branch is going to be exalted. He's going to prepare a way and draw all the people to himself. The mountains will be made low and the valleys will be lifted up. And this pathway will be opened through the Nile. And there will be rivers in the desert. All of these things together combined to this picture that God is preparing the way for the restoration of his people to glory that he has always intended for them. Verse 11, God proclaims his salvation is about to come. Lo, your salvation comes. His reward is with him and his recompense is before him. Why does this matter? Why is this important? Well, the reality is that it is a declaration of deliverance for those who are trusting in God and a warning of God's judgment for those who are not. Reward is a generally positive word. Recompense is sort of like the consequences that you deserve for bad actions that you've done. Now, there's parallelism here, so we shouldn't necessarily make them say different things, but the reality is God can come and bring a reward of blessing for those who are following him and a reward of punishment for those who are not. And so what message should we take away from this declaration of God's imminent salvation? If you are one of God's people... Be ready for him to return. Don't be like the foolish virgins in the story in one of Jesus' parables who fell asleep and weren't ready when the time came. Don't be like those who say, oh, well, God, I'll get around to it whenever. I've got all the time in the world to figure out, get my life in order. No. God's salvation is imminent, which means it could happen today, it could happen tomorrow, it could happen next week, it could happen a hundred years from now. But the fact that we don't know when he will return means we must always be ready not fearfully, not consumed with doom and gloom and the world is being destroyed. And I mean, even to the extent that those things are true, and that's ebbed and flowed throughout history, there's been dark times before, the reality is God is coming to deliver his people and we should look for that with anticipation. It's one of the fundamental aspects of what it means to be a true follower of Jesus, to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. But if we are in a position where we are not ready to meet him because we're not one of his people, this declaration of salvation of God coming to help his people should be a severe warning. If 
God is coming to reward for the things that I have done and the things that I have done and the things that I am doing are things that he says are an abomination and he hates and he's going to punish. I shouldn't be excited about his coming. I should be saying, I've got to get ready now. So just like the person who is trusting in God has to be getting ready right away, so too the person who is not following God also needs to see in this declaration of imminence, I've got to get ready now. And how do we do that? We get ready for the coming of Jesus by turning to Jesus. And I hope all of us have done that. Why do I keep saying these things over and over again? Why is it important for us to consistently reflect on the gospel message? Because of the warnings that we see various places in Scripture. There are those who are convinced that they belong to God who do not. The people in Matthew who say, We did all these great things in your name, God. And Jesus said, I never knew you. Simon the magician who seemingly turns to God and, and uh, wants to follow after him. And then when he sees the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, I'm going to give you some money. Give me this. And Peter basically says, you don't know God at all. Now, whether he repents of that and turns to God later, we don't know. But there are people who appear to know God, sometimes because we have wrong priorities of what we evaluate knowing God looks like, and sometimes because we're really good at hiding what's actually going on in our hearts, it is possible for someone to be a member of a church for years and be in that number like Simon the Magician and those that are worn in Matthew and not really know God at all. It doesn't matter how many kids you've taught in Sunday school. It doesn't matter how many prayers you've given. It doesn't matter how much you've given in the offering over the years. It doesn't matter if everybody thinks that you're the most upstanding Christian in the world. God knows your heart. And only you know, in, according to verse 11, are you ready when God's salvation comes? Are you going to be with God or apart from God? I can have an idea as we talk, and as we interact, and all those sorts of things. People around you can have an idea. But ultimately, you don't get into heaven. You don't have an eternity with God. You don't have a relationship with Him on the basis of your reputation with other people. So make sure that you are ready. Verse 12 sort of sums up all of what he's been saying in these three chapters. God's people are redeemed and holy as he always intended them to be, belonging, not forgotten. They will call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. Why does God save people? God does not save people so that they can say, I have a ticket to heaven, and now I'm going to do whatever I want, but I got my get-out-of-jail-free card. God saves people because He wants to transform their lives and use them as a testimony of His grace. Here's someone who doesn't deserve God's kindness at all, someone who's not smart or strong or rich or whatever else. And yet God takes this person, like Paul who was a murderer, like Peter who's this loud, brash, I can do it all myself kind of guy, breaks Peter's pride, humbles Paul's wisdom, all of these things, and then we see what God uses them to accomplish in the world, and that's what God is doing with us as well. 
Our goal in life is not our happiness or our temporal satisfaction. Our goal in life, the thing that we should pray for most fervently, is what God says He is saving us to do. What is He saving us to do? Ephesians 2.10 said we were created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. Why does God save you? God doesn't save you because of good works, but God saves you to live out good works. God doesn't save you so that you can be self-righteous in holiness, but God saves you so that you will genuinely become holy and become like Jesus and be fit for His presence as He transforms your life. And so when he says, the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, that's what God has desired for his people all throughout history. This has a lot of practical applications in terms of you and I um, cannot love sin and be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord in any genuine, real, meaningful way. But it's less about the negative. Here's the list of things you're not supposed to do, which is sometimes what we make it about. And it's more about the positive opportunity to reflect our God who is holy. Now, there's aspects of God's holiness that we can't reflect. God is above all. We are never going to be above all. But God is also apart from sin and full of perfection and that's what he's accomplishing in us, that we would be apart from sin and perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Can we do that on our own? Absolutely not. But day by day, God takes someone, like it talks about in Ephesians 4, whose life is characterized by stealing. How can I scheme? How can I plot? How can I take? Could be stealing from your boss. Could be stealing from someone you know. Could be legitimately like breaking into people's houses and taking their stuff. God says, all right, here's a thief. I'm going to change that person's life. What does that look like? I'm going to change that person's thoughts. I deserve this, so I'm going to take it. Come over here. God says, you deserve nothing. What you deserve is my eternal wrath. And so the idea that you are entitled to all these things and you can just take them from whoever you want, you're a sinner. You don't deserve any of those things, so you can't have that attitude. So he changes their thoughts. He changes this person's attitude, an attitude of grasping, taking, getting. And that's the attitude that our culture encourages in us, right? Want, buy, consume, eat, take, enjoy, and just repeat the cycle over and over and over again. What's the attitude supposed to be over here? I deserve nothing. I can take nothing out of this world. So instead of having an attitude of grasping and seizing and gratifying everything that I want, I should have an attitude of giving and serving and helping those around me. And then he changes the action. This person stops stealing and actually starts giving. Well, how is that possible? Well, instead of stealing, 
This person starts working, and not just working to meet his own needs, but working so that he has extra, so that that extra that he has is not to be consumed on himself, but on ministering the needs of those around him. That's what holiness looks like. God progressively transforming our lives from whatever sin it is that we love in the things that we think, in the attitudes and desires that we have, and in the actual actions that we carry out. Now, our problem with holiness is that oftentimes we think we just change the action. Stop stealing because you're going to get in trouble. Start working. We don't take it to the point of giving. We just say, stop stealing, start working. Okay. Now this person is a productive memory of society, but still damned to hell. Can't stop there. Let's take a different sin. Let's take the sin of lust. The sin of lust says, it's just how guys are. Women can do whatever they want with their bodies. No one should judge them. That's what a thought would be for someone who's consumed by that sin. What does the Bible say? This is God's will that you abstain from immorality. Abstaining from immorality is hard work. But that's what the Bible says. What's the desire? The desire is gratification of personal satisfaction regardless of God's boundaries. What's the desire that God wants us to have? Self-control except in the parameters of God's boundaries. What's the action? All sorts of things. Homosexuality, sex before marriage, adultery, all of these kinds of things. What action is this supposed to be replaced with? A physical relationship only in marriage. And that's it. You say, that's too much to ask. Well, Jesus did it. And there's a bunch of other people that God isn't able to do it. And at the end of the day, it's what God has said to do. So we can't just say, well, it's too hard to do. I'm not going to worry about it. Let's take another example. Anger. Anger is one of those funny things that it's a sin that usually reveals other things that are going on in our hearts, pride and so forth. But just by way of example, what does the Bible say about anger? Maybe a thought that has in your head is, I deserve to be at work on time even though I left late, so this person needs to get out of my way. Come over here to a different biblical thought. This person in front of me, however slow he or she may be driving, is created in God's image and I don't have a right to respond in rage. What's the desire? The desire is that everything in life is oriented around me and what I want. I wanted to sleep in, so I slept in, and now I'm running late, and so everyone else needs to get out of the way so I can do what I need to do. What's the desire over here? The desire over here, to some extent, goes back to the question of self-control. I get up earlier to allow for the unexpecteds of life. Uh, some of it goes to the fact that I'm going to treat people the way that God wants me to treat them. There's all of different things of what the desire changes, but it changes from a selfish one to one that's oriented towards serving other people, honoring commitments to being at work and all that kind of thing. Then how does the action change? The action changes from road rage and, and all these sorts of things to driving calmly and praying when I'm frustrated instead of giving full vent to my feelings. 
Let's take another example from the perspective of kids. Kids saying, I can do whatever I want, and I'm in charge in the house. Well, that might be the thought. I should get to do whatever I want. What does God say the correction is? Children, obey your parents. Not, I do whatever I want. What is the desire? The desire is what I want when I want it without regard for why it might be a bad idea. The desire over here should be to be pleasing to God and to be pleasing to parents through obedience. What then is the action? Dad says, clean your room. Mom says, take out the trash. The one who's living sinfully says, no. You say, what's the big deal about disobedience to parents? Because it's on the list of sins for which the world is being described as falling apart and, and bent toward hell. It's listed there with things like adultery and murder. So it's not just a minor, not, but not a big deal kind of a thing. And so it's kind of funny because we'll say, well, you know, I got saved when I was a kid, so I never did anything really bad. Well, I mean, disobedient parents is on the list with all the things that we think are really bad. So you did do things that were really bad. And God has saved you from that, hopefully. And what is that replaced with? It's replaced with not they say to do something and we complain and grumble and refuse to do it. It's replaced with willing, cheerful obedience. Now, is that hard? Do we need to pray and ask God for help with that? Absolutely. There are any number of other things that we could go to of, of uh, sins that are contrary to the holiness God wants in us and what God is accomplishing to change us from those things. But the point that I'm trying to make from verse 12 is this. By God's work, we are changed from being wicked to being holy. Sometimes, like the Israelites, that's through a process of purification and discipline of great trials and difficulties. Sometimes that's just through the normal, everyday transformation of encountering God's Word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the fellowship of God's people. But that is what God is trying to accomplish in us. Just like He promised He would do for the Israelites, He has promised He will do it for us. And this, this is the beautiful picture that we see as we look at this alongside Ephesians chapter 5. God doesn't go out and say, I'm going to pick a wife who is perfect. God says, I'm going to pick a wife who is not, and I'm going to transform her so that she is. And you and I are the ones for whom God is doing that, making collectively all of us together for himself a bride who is worthy of him. Now, the difference is, it's not really your job in marriage to make your wife fit for heaven, because that's God's job. And that's where the illustration starts to break down, I think, when we look at a passage like Ephesians 5. But when we understand what God is doing, we see what God did with Israel in the Old Testament, what he's promised he will do again in the future with them. When we see how marriage is a picture of Christ in the church and Christ is purifying the church for himself, all of this ties into this idea of holiness and redemption and God's purpose for salvation and what God is accomplishing in the world. God is doing remarkable things by His grace to take people from being miserable sinners, going their own way, devoted to themselves, worshiping idols, all of these sorts of things, to being people about which He can truly and honestly say, I take my delight in them. 
They reflect who I am. They are worthy of me. And then that last phrase there, you'll be called sought out, a city not forsaken. I don't know what your experience is in life. There may be a lot of people who have seemed to forsake you or who legitimately have. Israel was forsaken because it was their own fault. They turned away from God, and God let them be abandoned to their enemies for a time. But God never intended to leave them there forever. I'm going to seek you out, and I'm going to bring you back. And there's this great picture in the story of Hosea. Um, Hosea, Hosea marries a woman who's a prostitute, and she keeps committing adultery. And he keeps going and bringing her back. Why? Not because every last one of us are called to that sort of thing. Because there are legitimate reasons for marriage to end when there's unfaithfulness. But there's not an obligation for it. God continued to love unfaithful Israel over and over and over again. She went and worshipped Dagon of the Philistines. She went and worshipped Molech of the people to the north of her. She went and worshipped the Baals and the Ashtoreth of the Canaanites multiple instances of immorality and unfaithfulness and adultery, and God kept bringing her back. And so when it says here, sought out, not forsaken, that's the sort of picture that's supposed to come to our mind. Israel sinned over and over and over again, and God kept chasing after her and bringing her home. And eventually, there would come a day when she would stop wandering away. And so what does that look like for you and I? God has sought us out to be his people. Are we going to keep running back to the sins that he is saving us from? Are we going to keep going our own way like Israel did over and over again? Or do we learn from their example and say, why would I keep giving myself to those who only love me because of me bribing them to do so because that's the way that God describes Israel's relationship with the pagan gods and the foreign nations. You have to pay them to basically commit immorality with you. You have to pay them to find attraction in you. God says, I genuinely love you and I will be your husband. I will be the one who is devoted to you. Are you going to keep chasing after those who don't love you? Are you going to keep worshiping idols that can't help you? Are you going to keep um, doing sins that destroy you? Or are you going to come here where you will be loved and cared for and receive what you actually need? In the day that's described in Isaiah 62, God's people will call those who are sought out and not forsaken. We see in all these events the glorious plan of God unfolding, hope of restoration despite past sin, and motivation to follow God with all of who we are. Second Corinthians 5 says this, One died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died and rose again on their behalf. Our redemption means that we owe God our all to live for him and not for ourselves. Our lives as a picture of God's forgiveness. Our marriages as a picture of God's sacrificial love and the church's willing obedience. 
our families as an echo of the great family that will gather someday in heaven. So if you're living in sin today, turn away from it. You cannot be restored apart from repentance. If you're forgiven, but you won't forgive others, you diminish the glory of God's redemption in the eyes of the world and call into question whether or not you really know Him. If your marriage is full of fighting and apathy toward each other, you're failing to picture God and His people to the world around you in the way that Isaiah 62 talks about. If your family is disunited, disrespectful to parents or parents who don't care toward their children, everyone off doing things on their own and isolated, you fail to picture the unity that comes in God's family that's described in chapter 60 and 61. If our church is full of any of these things, lack of forgiveness, fighting or apathy toward each other, disrespect and isolation, we are failing to picture what God is doing in the world through His church. God has accomplished great salvation for us. He will continue to accomplish that salvation for His people Israel as we see in this passage And he's going to bring all these things together someday when Jesus returns. This is a glorious vision. Don't you want to be a part of it? And if you do, then praise God, rejoice with God as he remarries his wayward bride and see the holiness and the belonging that God is accomplishing for his people throughout history. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would catch sight of your vision for salvation throughout history and particularly for us. That you would accomplish in us the holiness and the relationship that is the point of you saving us. And that we would see that as the point of it. Not that we would see getting out of going to hell as the main point. Not that we would see being forgiven of our sins so that we can keep doing it as the main point because clearly it's neither of those things but that we would desire the holiness that you are working in us that we would cultivate the relationship that you have with us and that we would see all these things clearly we pray all this in Christ's name Amen